Thank you for choosing to listen to the sermons of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. We meet at 2309 9th Avenue in Haleyville, Alabama. And if you're ever in our area, we would love to have you as our guests. If you live in our area, we would love to study the Bible with you. You can call us anytime to study a Bible study or just to gain more information at 205-486-9247. Also visit our website, 9thAvenueCofC.com or check us out on Facebook by simply searching for 9th Avenue Church of Christ. Now we hope you'll join us for a study of God's Word as we seek to follow Him each and every day from the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ in Haleyville, Alabama. It is estimated by those who study such things and frankly have a whole lot more time on their hands than I do, that if you were to take Solomon's net worth and bring it into today's money, that Solomon would be worth somewhere in the range of two trillion dollars. Now, I don't know how they figure that up, and to be honest with you, I don't have time to figure out how they figure that up. But to give you some idea of how much money that is, the richest person who currently is alive is Jeff Bezos, the founder and CEO of Amazon. He's only worth $110 billion the last time I checked. He might have made a couple more billion since a couple days ago. I don't know. But as staggering as that number is, it's a 20th of the estimated worth of King Solomon. And yet Solomon is the one who began a book of the Bible with the words, Vanity of vanities. Always vanity. And then he ended that same book by reminding what the conclusion of the whole matter was. Fear God and keep His commandment, for this is the whole of man. Or the old King James says, this is the whole duty of man. One translation has it, this applies to every person. Here was the richest man who has ever lived, and it's not close, saying that that pursuit was vanity. And what really mattered was the pursuit of holiness or sanctification. The Bible from beginning to end speaks to the concept of wealth, possessions, money. We see that concept over and over again. And it's interesting, the Bible does not present money as a negative thing. It presents the love of money as a negative thing. First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10, that the love of money is a root of all types or all kinds of evil. But the Bible does not present the opposite of greed as just living in a hermit, as a hermit in a cave and never being around anybody else. Instead, it presents the opposite of, of greed as more of contentment. In fact, just two verses earlier in First Timothy chapter 6, the same writer, of course, Paul had said that if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. It should not surprise us then that Jesus himself speaks to the subjects of wealth, possessions, and money over and over again. In fact, you may have heard it said before that Jesus spoke more of those possessions than he spoke about virtually anything else. In fact, if you were to take what Jesus said about heaven and hell and combine them, it still doesn't even come close to speaking uh, to how many times Jesus spoke of wealth, possessions, contentment, and money. Maybe the best example of what we should be as far as content is found in the Old Testament. In Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 through 9, a writer named Agur said in that passage, Give me neither riches nor poverty. And he went on to say that if I have too much, if I have riches, I'll begin to think I did this. I'm paraphrasing. And I'll, forgive, I'll forget to give glory to God. 
But if I'm poor, I might be tempted to steal and take away from other people. And so his idea was, just let me be kind of in the middle. Don't give me riches, don't give me poverty, just let me just kind of be in the middle. But the passage we read together a few minutes ago, in Luke chapter 12, and I hope you have your Bible open to Luke 12, we're going to spend the rest of our time right there, may be the most famous story Jesus told about money and possessions. We're calling our lesson this morning, Satisfied or Sanctified? And the reason we're calling it that is because the one in this parable, the one we often call the rich fool, had an opportunity. He took the opportunity to just be satisfied, to just say, look what I've got. Everything's fine. The famous phrase, relax, eat, drink and be merry. When he should have taken this as an opportunity to seek sanctification, in other words, to seek a way to glorify God, to be holy and set apart. What I want to do this morning is just simply walk through this text with you. You know the parable, I hope, quite well. But I want us to look at some things found before the parable, and then we'll spend the bulk of our time in the story of the parable itself. But first of all, this morning, notice with me the situation. What is going on? Because it is interesting, this parable is not one of those that's just found in the text with nothing around it. You do have a situation that that leads to Jesus telling the parable. In Luke chapter 12 and verse 13... Someone in the crowd, I don't know who it was, just somebody in the crowd, asked Jesus to sort of settle a dispute here. You, you tell my brother to give me my inheritance. Now, that may seem like a very strange request to ask Jesus, but it was not that uncommon in that day and time for someone to ask a respected teacher, a respected rabbi, to go beyond just being an instructor. In other words, to go beyond just dispensing information and to actually say, here's how to handle that. You might think of Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse 17, where the Old Testament law gave some some things about how if there was more than one son, the, the oldest one received more than those who were younger. If the case is in Luke 12 that there were two, it seems that way. Tell my brother, singular, it would seem there are just two. Then the older one received roughly two-thirds, while the younger received roughly one-third. And we don't know if that's the case, if this is the older brother saying... Something was wrong with the will, something was wrong with the paperwork, and I can't get this figured out. Or if it's the younger one saying, hey, my older brother hasn't given me anything. We don't know, but somewhere along the the, the way, something's gone wrong. But the situation is not just this whole thing about the percentages. Did you notice the way he said this? He just basically demanded that Jesus do it. And that's why Jesus comes back with very strong language. Who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? Now, Jesus was not saying that he never cared about civil matters. He did from time to time, did he not? Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So he cared about civil matters. But Jesus' primary focus was not on civil matters. It was on spiritual matters. He had said earlier in the book of John, My food or my meat is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He would... Speak later and say, my kingdom is not of this world. That's a very famous statement we know. But his primary focus was not on the physical or this dispute. But that's the situation where someone comes to Jesus and basically makes this demand. You tell my brother to do this. And Jesus says, that's none of my doing right now. It seems to me that something in what the man requested or demanded, if you will, but also possibly the way it was said is what leads to this just outflow of words from Jesus. Because notice in the second place that Jesus gives a stipulation. 
This is one of the very few places, not the only place, but one of the very few where Jesus gives the point of the parable before he tells the parable. It may be the only place where Jesus gives the point before he tells the parable and as he concludes the parable. But he begins by just making the point. Down in verse 15, he said, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, you take a look at what Jesus said there as, as the stipulation, as sort of the foundational statement. The phrase, take care, literally means stare at something. That's what the phrase literally means. Jesus is trying to get this person, whoever this was in the crowd, to say, right now, I want you to focus. Any parent ever said that before? Please don't raise your hand. But that's what Jesus is saying to this person. There is something that you need to stare at. You need to focus your minds on it. And then he said to be on guard. And the idea behind that phrase is you stare at something so much that it cannot escape your view at all. You be on guard against it. It's very similar, by the way, to what Peter would say in First Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. Before he describes the devil as our enemy as a warring lion, he said, be watchful and be vigilant. This is the same concept that Jesus is telling this man in the crowd. You stare at this so much that you can't let it escape your view for a moment. What are you supposed to look at? Really, your heart. Because covetousness is an inner thing, is it not? The word covetousness literally just means to, to have. But we all know what comes from the idea of to desire something. One scholar defines the word covetousness as the longing of the creature which has forsaken God... To fill itself with lower objects of nature. And that's a fancy definition. I couldn't have written that. But but you see the point he's trying to make. That you take something that's not God. In other words, something lower than God, which is anything else. And you place it as what you desire, what you long for. And Jesus makes it clear in the stipulation that it doesn't just have to be money, does he not? Because he says to be on guard against all covetousness. That had to bring to mind The Ten Commandments. Because the Tenth Commandment did not just say, you shall not covet money. That's not what it says, is it? In fact, it makes a long list. You shall not covet your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's ox or donkey or his manservant or his maidservant. And it says, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Jesus is bringing that concept forward to this stipulation. Stare at and do not let escape your view that Anything that is not God should not be what draws you, not be what you long for. That's the stipulation. And with that, we turn to the story. Hopefully you know Luke chapter 12, the parable of the rich fool, quite well. Then there are any number of ways to outline that parable. But for our purposes... And for time's sake, let's notice just four parts to the parable. First of all, this man receives a superabundant harvest. You may think that's a strange word, okay? For one thing, yes, I wanted to start with the letter S. Okay, I'll be honest with you. But also because that's what it is. This is not just a, a harvest. It's not just an abundant harvest. Can you imagine getting so much stuff that all you can think about is, 
I've got to figure out more room just to store what just came in. Not what might come later, but what just came in. I've got to tear down barns and build bigger barns. It's a super abundant harvest. But have you ever noticed that there may be sort of a subtle jab at the outset of this parable toward human nature? Because if you ever noticed that Jesus does not say the rich man gained a harvest, it's not what it says, is it? He says the land of a rich man produced plentifully. Ouch. Now, I have no doubt that this rich man had something to do with it. Either he hired the right people or he went out and planted the seed himself or at least some of the seed himself. Maybe he went out there and worked the field somewhat. I have no doubt. And it's implied from the story that part of the reason, if not the only reason he's rich, is because he's good at what he does. But Jesus does not say the rich man got a big harvest. He said the land produced the harvest. There might be a subtle jab there at our own human nature to think I've got it all together. But the harvest itself is absolutely off the charts because the man simply cannot figure out what to do with it. But at this point, if this was where the parable ended, in other words, Jesus said, said, by the way, there was a rich man who got a lot of stuff. He hasn't done anything wrong at this point. He has just received an abundance or a super abundance of harvest. But of course, the parable goes on. Jesus talks about the selfish solution. It's here that we see the heart of the rich man. And by the way, the word rich in this parable is not used in a negative sense. The context has to help us with that. This same word for rich is found in the New Testament in both positive and negative ways. In fact, it's used later in the same text in a positive way that we can be rich toward God. But here it's used in a negative way because what makes the difference is not that this man received a large harvest. It's what he chooses to do with that harvest that makes all the difference. You may have seen this before, but have you ever taken the time to read what Jesus has this rich man saying and notice all the personal pronouns in it? Just look at verses 18 and 19. The rich man said, I will tear down, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, which by the way, this is really weird that he names his own soul, soul. But anyway, soul, you have ample good laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. How many times, and if you go back to verse 17, there's two or three more, over and over again. I, my, I, I, my, my. I wonder who the center of this guy's universe is. And I wonder who he's thinking about. He's thinking about no one but himself. What's missing from that? A lot of things are missing. First of all, of course, God is missing. Should he not have at least paused for a moment and praised God for this harvest? Or should he not have dropped to his knees and said, it's a bumper crop, Lord, what do you want me to do with this? God is missing. The Old Testament law had all sorts of stipulations for regular harvests, but for certain for abundant harvests. Other people are missing, specifically the poor. The Old Testament law, did it not, said you leave the corners of the field for the poor and the sojourners. And you leave other things for those who are who are widowed. And so that's where the book of Ruth starts out, or at least in the middle of the book, is it not? Where she goes to the field and gleans with those. And he, and he says, Boaz says, leave the stuff for her. He goes, she's been lurk, working like the rest of us. Why is he not thinking of other people? Vera notices there's no, no mention whatsoever of family. We don't know if the guy's married. It's just a parable. The guy's married, has kids. But even if he's not... Is there no one else in this guy's life whatsoever? No family or friends? There is no one else that this guy thinks of except I, me, and my, his three favorite people. 
That's all he can think of. And it's a selfish solution. It is remarkable what this man has in his mind. He reminds me of King Nebuchadnezzar way back in the book of Daniel. You recall when Nebuchadnezzar looked out over Babylon, Daniel chapter 4 and verse 30, what does he say? Behold Babylon the great that I have built for my own glory. I doubt very sincerely that Nebuchadnezzar laid every brick. I don't think he had time to. But when Nebuchadnezzar looked out of Babylon, what did he see? I did this and it's all for me. That's the same mindset that this rich man in Jesus' parable has. I did it and it's all for me. I'm the solution because I have taken care of this. And with that, all he says is, what's left to do? Sit back and do nothing. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. If you don't think this parable is for 2018... How many of us, whenever we receive some kind of financial blessing or a blessing of some windfall, that's our response to? I've got things taken care of now for a little while. I'll just sit back and be merry. How many people in our culture live for that? Just live for the, 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 the good life, as we call it, the, the fun side of things. Never thinking about How can I honor God? How can I honor God by helping others? How can I bless my family? We could add my friends if we wanted to to that. It's a selfish solution. And that's where the parable takes its turn. Because Jesus then points out the sobering reality. Is it not shocking to read the first line of verse 20? Where God says to him, fool. Some translations have the two words, you fool. That one line should stop us in our tracks And it makes us think about the terminology. It is a different word, by the way, than the one found in Matthew chapter 5. Because you may be thinking, wait a minute, didn't Jesus say, whoever says, you fool, will be in danger of the hell of fire? This is where I wish translations were different. Because Matthew 5 is a different word than Luke chapter 12. This is still a strong word. But the word here that God says through this parable is a word that just means misguided one. Or one who acts without thinking. That's this word. It's really more what we might think of as foolish than just calling someone fool. But why was this man foolish? This man had everything. He had the money. He had his plans. He knew what he was going to do. He was going to relax. He was going to take care of the good life. He was going to take care of it. He was in charge of everything. In fact, he was the solution to everything. And that's what made him foolish. Because the one thing he forgot is what he could not control was time. You can make money. You can make all kinds of, you can buy all kinds of possessions. You can have all the experiences in life you want to. But the one thing none of us can control whatsoever is the passing of time. And that's what God gives him as a sobering reality. He said, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared then whose will they be? This is a powerful rebuke in the little speech that the man had made with himself earlier. Think about it. In that one statement that God made, he turned back everything the man had said to himself. The man had thought it was all for him. And the Lord reminded him that there's something else beyond you. The man thought he could have ease and relax and have plenty of time. The Lord said, you don't have any more time. And there's things way more serious than just eating, drinking, and being married. The man thought that he had all the time in the world. And the Lord reminded him that all could be taken away, even immediately. 
Solomon dealt with the same sobering reality back in the book of Ecclesiastes. In fact, several places, Ecclesiastes 2 verses um, 18 and 19 are one place. There's others, though, where he talks about how the vanity of working your whole life to build something up and then realizing you're going to die one day and who's it going to be then? It might be turned over to, to a foolish person. But here this man realizes maybe there's no one else. Because whose will they be when you are gone? You don't need a preacher to remind you that the Bible speaks often of the brevity of life, but also of the surety of something beyond this life, the day of judgment and eternity. Life is that vapor that James writes about in James 4.14. It's described as a span, that is, the distance across our hand in Psalm 89 and verse 47. Life moves faster than the shuttle of a weaver working on the loom, Job 7 and verse 6. And of course, very famously, the Hebrews writer stated that it is a point that a man wants to die. And after that does come the judgment, Hebrews 9 and verse 27. It is a sobering reality. But then Jesus concludes the parable by making his point again as he gives the spiritual application. He repeated the point as he closed the parable down in verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The question becomes, why is that true? Why is it true that one's like that? It's because the things of this life are not the things we can take with us. While the soul that is within us is what will go on and what needs to be nurtured for the next life. The soul is what will live on forever in heaven or in hell. So which are we treating richly? Which are we treating with a thought toward tomorrow? But notice that Jesus does not say that there are no treasures in this life. What he talks about is laying up for ourselves treasures in life. And does it not bring to mind something he had said earlier? Matthew chapter 6 and the parable of the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on the earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust corrupts and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then, of course, he very famously said, for where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be also. The ancient Romans had a little proverb. You can find it written different ways. But it basically says that money is like seawater. The more a man drinks, the thirstier he becomes. You've heard that illustration written many different ways, said many different ways, that we can gain so much. And what do we want? Just a little more. And we live in a time where that's never more, never has been more dangerous. It's not wrong to have nice things. It's not wrong to to have money stored away. It's not wrong to save for retirement or for your kid's college, (laughs) thankfully. Um, It's not wrong to to think about the future. But what are we treasuring? Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. The rich man in Luke chapter 12, the rich fool, where was his treasure? In himself. So where was his heart? All within himself. I said to my soul, Soul, take thine ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. A young man came to an older gentleman and said, I would like to learn a trade from you. And the older gentleman just said, That's a good thing, young man. You want to learn a trade? He said, yes. And the older gentleman said, okay, what then? 
And the young man said, I would like to learn the trade and then begin my own business doing the trade. And the older gentleman said, what then? And the younger man was a little bit frustrated. He said, well, I suppose I'll, I'll work my life and save up money for the future. And the older gentleman asked the same question. What then? And the younger boy said, well, I suppose I'll retire on what I've made and live the good life. And the older gentleman said, what then? That's the wisdom that only comes with age. Because as the story goes, the young boy said, I suppose one day I will die. And the older gentleman then asked, what then? Too often we get caught up only in me and my and today. When all of us know we need to step back and ask ourselves, what then? If this morning you are as poor as a pauper, or if somehow this morning you had the wealth of Solomon, the only question that matters is, what then? Are you rich toward this life? Or are you rich toward God? If I may go back to our title, am I just satisfied or am I seeking to be sanctified? This morning, if you have never put Christ on in baptism, if you've never given your life to the one who gave his life for you, we would love for you to do that this morning. We would do anything to encourage you to do that. Maybe this morning you have... You've done that, but throughout your life as a Christian, some things have gotten in the way, and you you realize this morning you're living more for me and mine today, and you're failing to live as a Christian. Think about what then? And you want to rededicate your life to a life of faithfulness and sanctification, holiness before God. Can we pray with you? Can we encourage you through prayer? Whatever your need is, will you come? Always stand and sing to encourage you.